Prison sounds horrible. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Andy. Thanks. Prison Mike, what's the very, very worst thing about prison? The worst thing about prison was the, was the Dementors. They were flying all over the place and they were scary and then they'd come down and they'd suck the soul out of your body and it hurt. Dementors like in Harry Potter? No, not Harry Potter. It's Britney, bitch. And uh, the Iraq, everywhere, like, such as. I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Out, Charlie! Our next door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. Hello. Welcome, everybody, to Remember Shuffle, your podcast about 2000s nostalgia and its lasting impact or lack thereof. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is my co-host, Giordano. Hello. And today we are joined by a very good friend of mine, Dell. Hello, everyone. We started off this show, our very own podcast, by discussing the second best sitcom of the decade, How I Met Your Mother. That's second best in terms of ratings and the like, maybe not in terms of quality. And today we are talking about the number one, the juggernaut, The Office. It is ubiquitous. What is there to say? It's the Friends or the Seinfeld of the Y2K decade. You listener, you've probably seen it three times. You've seen it in memes. You've seen it in GIFs that have become one of the main ways that we communicate between ourselves. <laughs> if you are a very lame person, maybe you say that you're looking for your Jim or Pam on your dating profile. It is a cultural touchstone. Saying you like The Office would be like claiming you like The Beatles or The Simpsons or fucking puppies. And why shouldn't you? The Office is a good show. That is the official Remember Shuffle <laughs> take. Well, more accurately, it's a show that averages out to be good. On the whole, it is a well-written, well-acted, well-executed show. But you can have too much of a good thing. Some people have truly turned The Office into a show of ritual significance in their lives. Here's the fun factoid. 57 billion minutes of The Office were streamed on Netflix in 2020 alone. That's nearly 105,000 years of TV (laughs) watching time squeezed into one calendar year. We'll start by discussing the characters of The Office because as a sitcom, it is a show that is driven by its characters, and then we'll trace the arc of The Office from its earlier seasons to its later ones, as I think there's something quite insidious about The Office, what it has to say about work, family and friends, and the place of The Office as both place and concept in our lives. The Office is a show whose satirical mocking of the dreariness and drudgery of meaningless work was very slowly defanged over the course of eight seasons into a saccharine wish fulfillment fantasy. Yeah, and normally we start every episode by justifying our topic choice and saying, oh, well, here's why we have to talk about Gili or <laughs> here's why we have to talk about Juno. We can just skip that part entirely for The Office because everybody knows how popular this show was for the 2000s. So moving on to the history of The Office. Everybody knows that this show comes from jolly old England town, but I'm going to take us back. Ricky Gervais is 17 years old and is interviewing with a temp agency and a man in a bad suit says to him, I don't give shitty jobs. If a good man... And he points to Ricky to let him know that he already knew he was a good guy. ...comes to me and says, Thank you, David, for the opportunity and continued support in the work-related arena. Then I can make that dream come true too, a.k.a. for you. Vis-a-vis, you have not yet passed your forklift driver's test. The man who gives the jobs in the warehouse is a personal friend of mine. All right? 
And then he phoned his friend, the guy in the bad suit. Sammy, you old slag. The Brentmeister General. Have you ever tried the forklift driver's job? No, good. Don't bother. I've got the man here. He's perfect. As he passed his forklift driver's tests, he gives the tests. And winked at Ricky over the phone and did the Pinocchio nose mime. And a character in 14 different countries was born in that temp agency interview that day. That of the middle manager, convinced of his own comedic chops, are second only to his leadership skills and is drunk on his own power and magnanimousness. That is such a phenomenal character. Ricky Gervais talks about how he often did impressions of his bosses at various offices that he worked at to make his coworkers laugh. And that's how the Michael Scott character was formed. And I think that's the universal genius of this show is everyone in every workplace around the world has done an impression of their manager that is often poking fun at authority amongst labor. And it's the salve in working in what is usually an otherwise dull and stressful workplace. Some of the jobs that I recall the most fondly in my life were ones that were horrible in terms of the day-to-day stress level and requirements, but I got through them by making friends with people at work and doing impressions of our cruel boss together. And that's very universal and I think shines through for The Office a lot. Yeah, and I think one of the genius things about the Michael Scott character is that given his cruelty or delusion or insensitivity, you as the audience might ask, how the hell does this guy not get fired? How the hell did this guy get this job if you want to be a real pedant about the show? And one of the things I think the show does so brilliantly is establish that Michael Scott was an excellent salesman and he got over promoted into a leadership role, but the institution did not realize that these are two fundamentally different skill sets. In fact, the things that make you good at sales, this aggressiveness, this crippling desire to be liked by whoever (laughs) you're talking to, actually make you a very bad leader. I thought we might take a second here and just talk about some of that universalness of the horrible boss that you did an impression of. I used to work at this place called the Mongolian Grill, and it was a small town restaurant owned by a large Greek man named Lou. And this guy was a real life Mr. Krabs slash Michael Scott. Okay, uh, I'm not paying you to breathe type guy, which is (laughs) something he said to us very often. But the most Michael Scott moment I remember from him was we were cleaning the fridge one day and the electricity went out. So it was dark and we couldn't clean it anymore. So we came out, me and my South Asian coworker niche, and Lou yells at us because we're not working. And we said, it's dark in there. We can't see anything. And he says to niche, Hey, uh, Nish, uh, you should be used to working in the dark because of all the bunkers in Iraq. Remember, this is 2005. But the point is that this man was too ignorant to be racist. (laughs) He wanted to be racist, but he didn't know enough about the world to effectively do it. (laughs) Like, unaware of how close India is to Iraq on a map, he took his best shot and just bricked it. (laughs) Yeah, he was trying to reverse engineer a racist joke. So he was like, okay, we got darkness. What's dark? A bunker. What country uses bunkers? Iraq. What's Iraq? Kind of reminds me of india (laughs) boom ladies and gentlemen we got it (laughs) and you can see that i like to think of myself as an entertainer third (laughs) energy to it yeah Yeah. because he has a captive audience right yeah he's a small business tyrant and he has a bunch of 16 year olds who aren't allowed to not laugh at his dumb (laughs) jokes Dell, what's your horrible boss story? So when I was in college, I was a paralegal and the law firm I worked at was about as evil as it can get. We processed mortgage foreclosures and (laughs) I was in charge of advertising 
foreclosure sales after judgments had passed, which <laughs> requires me to send out a letter to the defendants to say, you know, just so you're aware, you've exhausted every avenue that you can have for avoiding this foreclosure, and it's going to judgment, and then it's going to sale. And so most of these houses were like second homes, and so they never would have even seen this. But I had this one file, it was an older file, and, and I sent out the letter on Friday, and uh, at the time I was practicing a particularly big and flowery signature, and so I, I put my signature on it. That was Friday, and I get back into the office on Monday, and I get a call from a guy who let me know that his son, who was getting foreclosed on, had the letter on his desk when he found his son um, uh, having killed himself. And, and so that was very traumatic. And I went and I told my boss that, and for the rest of the day, he called me killer. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that is a Michael Scott move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's brutal. That's uh, that's some chair model energy right there. <laughs> Killer Toby. Toby killed someone. <laughs> yeah, so actually, on that happy note, let's get into our characters in this character drama. So I think we're going to do deep-ish dives into our five or six main guys, and then we might do a lightning round because The Office has an absolutely enormous cast. It has usually five or six that are considered main. And then there's like nine or 10 that are called starring, which is between main and recurring. I don't know what the Hollywood nomenclature means, but it just has a lot of characters that they can have a lot of fun with. So let's start with the man himself, Michael Scott. Michael Scott. Steve Carell's overpromoted salesman into a management role. And in that first season, he is a fucking monster. Watch Diversity Day. Mm -hmm. I challenge you. And watch him scream an Indian impression Apu style at Mindy Kaling's Kelly Kapoor character. It is truly excruciating to watch. Yeah, he's also sort of physically very unpleasant to look at in that first season too. He's got his hair slicked back with a bunch of gel. He's much heavier, I believe, as well. And that was maybe like a British holdover, but uh, <laughs> they're like, we can't, we can't have that on American TV. They got to be cleaned up a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, he's truly a contemptible character in that first season and he doesn't attempt to resolve problems the same way that he will later on in the show so at, at the end of healthcare for example in one of the funniest moments of the show he's waiting to sort of resolve the tensions of the episode and is buying time for himself and so it's like and the surprise is the thing that it is drum roll please and then he just stalls until everybody from the office slowly walks away as they realize that he has nothing and they really committed to making him an evil character in that first season. And as the show goes on, the show creator said, listen, this might work for British TV where they got six episodes a year. But for American TV, you know, we got 25 episodes to put out. We need to make him more likable. We need people to buy into Michael Scott as a good guy. And so they start to make him 10% better per year is what the showrunner said about him. So Michael Scott now will attempt to resolve his issues, often in a very misguided way. And we start to see moments of him actually being a good manager or a good salesman at least. We get the episode The Client in the second season where they go to Chili's and he closes the deal. And we sort of learn that Michael has a good heart. Yes, it's all about the intentions with him where he's still a buffoon, he's still delusional, he still desperately needs to be liked, but they try and redeem him by he has a good heart. And I think they do this brilliantly in the episode The Art Show where none of the people in the office come to the art show to support Pam who wants 
wants to get better at art and she has a little display. Michael shows up. He's still an idiot. So he looks at her painting of the office and he says, this looks so good. It could be a tracing. (laughs) And he says that they're going to buy her art and put it up in the office, which they do. And I think it becomes a prop on the set is Pam's painting of the incredibly boring business park that Dunder (laughs) Mifflin Paper Company is located in. And so it's this idea that he'll do the right thing. He's still kind of dumb. And then they even, I think the punchline to that is Pam gives him a hug and he gets hard or something of that nature. I don't remember precisely. Yeah, he has a candy bar in his pocket. So (laughs) he doesn't. It it, does it that you think it was. But yeah, what's so interesting about that scene is yes, it's a genuine moment of likability where you you see this emotional bonding and you see him being a good job as a, a boss. But it's also very well executed because he's also still being extremely selfish. If I remember correctly in that episode, that's the same episode where he goes and talks to Ryan's business class and it's like questioning the value of this sort of middleman paper company. And so he comes from this existential crisis uh, of, of questioning the viability of his company. And he sees this art show and what he takes away from it is, oh, art is about my paper company and my car and my paper. Mm-hmm. So he's able in this moment to both genuinely connect with another person, but do so on the same kind of inward, almost selfish basis of finding justification for his own depressing existence within this sort of depressing art display. And so I, I found it to be doubly relatable in that sense, where it does retain a kind of moral ambiguity while also being very emotional and positive. I think that's a great example because it it speaks to what the show was best at. Michael, he has a good heart. He may be an idiot, but he's not malicious often. And in season one, that's not the case. In Diversity Day, he is trying to do self-aggrandizement in the way that he's trying to solve racism at the (laughs) office. He wants to show himself as the peacemaker. Whereas in season two, they start to pivot towards him actually wanting to resolve the issues at the office. You know, he's incredibly stupid stupid and so so by the time we get to season three we get an episode like gay witch hunt where michael is being homophobic but not because he actually doesn't like gay people but because he's ignorant and he's stupid and he wants to resolve his fundamental issues and then his attempts to resolve them are equally misguided (laughs) right he thinks that the way to fix it is to kiss oscar in front of the audience which is one of the funniest scenes of the show and could probably only be pulled off by steve carell oh Ah. Mm. Oh. Ah. 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 I did it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See? I'm still here. We're all still here. Allegedly not scripted, too. Allegedly improvised. And yeah, we keep pointing back to our own work, but something we said on the Arrested Development episode, misunderstandings lead to good comedy on a sitcom. Characters misunderstanding each other. But here you have a character who just doesn't understand himself, who is ignorant, who doesn't understand his own blind spots. And those misunderstandings can also lead to good comedy and good laughs. And the people they try to replace Michael Scott with later don't have that quality about them. They're often just mean. Mm -hmm. They have a bad heart when we try to move into like D'Angelo Vickers or uh, Danny California or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Robert California. No, no, keep it Danny. We're going to pipe that music into it. (laughs) 
or even Andy as boss. Yeah. Just to talk about a couple qualities of Michael Scott outside of his morality. We have this idea that he's a classic not funny guy who thinks he's funny, which is one of the funniest combinations to watch on television because we all know someone like this. And for a guy who's not funny but wants to be the funniest guy in the room, it usually just means that he's making references to things because Mm -hmm. this is the way that your brain can come up with something funny is to be like, oh, well, this is something that Johnny Carson said that was funny in the 70s. And what makes Michael's not funny guyness even more evident is that all of the references he's making aren't even topical, right? So it's in 2005, and rather than referencing something like the Ali G show or Arrested Development, he's making references to like Mork and Mindy or to the Johnny Carson show or Star Wars. He's going back to the 70s. Yeah, to his own childhood. Also, another great aspect of his trying to be funny is that the show makes clear he is enrolled in improv classes, (laughs) but he is incapable of improving. Most people, when they stick their mind to something, can improve. But he's so delusional and arrogant and narcissistic, he can't take a note in improv. So he ruins every scene by just shouting, I have a gun, and pointing a gun at people. Which is kind of what he does in The Office, right? (laughs) Because in improv, it's a yes and situation. You have to respond to new inputs. And so if someone says they have to gun, like, okay, I guess we're listening to you now. He needs to have control of the scene. And the way that he does that is through violence. And then in the workplace, it's also very similar. Oh, well, this is the boss. This is the person in charge of my raise or my employment. And so I have to pay attention to the gun that he's holding. Yeah, and a good example of that, too, is the board of things that you're not supposed to make fun of, right? And falling into the koi pond is, is at the top. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because he's the worst kind of jokester is someone who can dish it out, but is so fucking sensitive that they have a board of things you're not allowed to joke about in the office. Meanwhile, this guy's dropping Chris Rock bitch in the office. Mm -hmm. This idea of Michael Scott wanting to be funny and coming up short, I think, is a lot from the British office. The first example is when Jim puts Dwight's stapler in the Mm jello and they go on a little riff, right? It's like classic sort of office riffs, you know, oh, we put them in custardy. <laughs> Puns and wordplay. Yeah. And then Michael Scott so desperately wants to participate in this pun riff. Mm-hmm. And in the end, just I think he just says the word pudding. <laughs> he can't work <laughs> it into any context at all. What's up, dog? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to play a little game with you guys. You ready for this, Del? We are going to play a little game called George Bush or Michael Scott. And I think it's very interesting that the most beloved television character of the 2000s embodies a lot of the spirit of the president at the time. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that people were attracted to this type of character in the decade. And obviously, this is not how I think of George Bush. But I think a lot of people thought of him as a good-hearted idiot Mm -hmm. who tried his best and just wasn't smart enough to not put his foot in his own mouth sometimes. Just wasn't smart enough to not kill a million Iraqis. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, I'm sorry. You've never screwed up at work. You've never done an oopsies. (laughs) (laughs) And so we had President Michael Scott in the 2000s, or at least people thought that we did. And so I have prepared five quotes here, and I'd like you to guess who said them. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Michael Scott or uh, Regional Manager George Bush. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm ready. Ready? Okay. Here's the first one. You know... One of the great things about books is sometimes there are some fantastic pictures. I'm guessing Michael Scott. Uh, I'm guessing George Bush. That's a George Bush quote. Very good. <laughs> Dell winning one nothing. Okay, here's the next one. You know what they say, fool me once, 
strike one. Fool me twice, strike three. <laughs> I'm going George this W. Bush. Definitely Michael Scott. Okay, we flipped Michael Scott. This is Michael Scott. Fuck. Yes. Ben, 0 for 2. Because there is... There is a very similar George, George Bush malapropism. Yes. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, uh, we're not going to get fooled again. <laughs> <laughs> so good. All right, Ben, let's see if you can get, let's see if you can get the, the ball rolling on the next one. <laughs> or else Dale, I think, will have uh, a commanding lead that you cannot go overcome. <laughs> okay, ready? Okay, ready? I won't answer questions. Not in English, not in French, not in Mexican. Michael Scott. Mm-hmm. George Bush. That's George Bush. Fuck. <laughs> God damn. Really? Not not in Mexican? Yeah. Yeah. That was <laughs> his brother and sister-in-law both speak Spanish. Come right. on, dude. He's free. Yeah, he's from Texas. Uh, from Texas. Yeah. I'm doing air quotes. Okay, next one. Uh, out of great tragedy is the mother of invention. Michael Scott. I'm just gonna follow Dell at this. <laughs> <laughs> That is Michael Scott. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Ready? Last one. I don't particularly like it when people put words in my mouth. Either, by the way, unless I say it. George W. Bush. Yeah, I agree. George Bush. That's George Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it's the grammar is too bad to have come come from a writer. (laughs) (laughs) But just by virtue of the fact that you went over three on the first three, I think elucidates my point. In that, like, what we were looking for in the 2000s was a bumbling idiot with the heart of gold. <laughs> Maybe that's how we all felt at the time. <laughs> yeah, the only way I could tell the difference is I've just watched The Office too many times. <laughs> I am. Okay, let's move on to Jim. If you were bad at watching TV, you might mistake Jim as the main character of the show, even though it's clearly a deconstruction of Michael and Dwight. Jim is the straight man of the show. He is the quote-unquote normal one. When we first meet him in seasons one and two, he is a slacker with dumb hair. He doesn't care about his job. He torments Dwight with what are increasingly elaborate office pranks. And then, by the end of the show, something strange happens. (laughs) This guy who said that if he was still working at Dunder Mifflin in five years, he would kill himself, eventually becomes a guy who says, this is the best job of my entire life, or some shit like that in the finale. Jim's a slacker. He has a huge crush on the receptionist, Pam, who is engaged at the early on in the show. And in a classic sitcom trope, they do a will, they won't they, and they eventually willed did uh, by the fourth season. The classic Jim move is that because of the mockumentary style, Jim looks directly into the camera, which in most things they tell you not to do, and he does a smug little smirk like Dell is doing right now. (laughs) He does a smug little stupid face. He is essentially the soy mime. He's like if Joss Whedon was a mime. His face, what it's saying, that's now the sign language symbol for so that happened. (laughs) Brutal, brutal stuff. Dell, you haven't watched the last season, have you? You're like a super fan who hasn't made it to the end yeah i haven't watched the last four episodes yet (laughs) so i'm an academic and i'm trying to get a tenure track job and i told myself i wouldn't watch the last four episodes until i got a tenure track job and so (laughs) i basically know everything that happens but as a matter of principle i'm saving that last bite until i get into my own office it's gonna be so disappointing anticlimactic and underwhelming much like getting i'm sure it'll be no more (laughs) exactly i'm sure it's no different than getting the job that i'm driving for yeah (laughs) 
the show starts with Jim, and we love him. He embodies the audience point of view, which is that all of this is sort of mundane and, and crazy, and we're above it like him. And in the end, he is one of the most enthusiastic participants of the office culture, and in fact is Dwight's best man at his wedding, mm-hmm. even though he's terrorized this person for years. Jim also starts a sports marketing company later on in the show and moves on from the office, which I think is very, very funny. Ben said here that the show is suffering from entourage syndrome in that the characters need to mature a little bit too much. And this plot point is especially funny because Pam in an earlier season tries to go to art school and the show can't even let her graduate from Pratt. And yet Jim is allowed to split off to form a very successful sports marketing company. Dreams are for men. Dreams are for (laughs) men and winners in the ideology of the show. Yeah, the specific thing that I meant with the entourage syndrome is that it's insane wish fulfillment where the material conditions of the characters' lives only improve and they find ludicrous success. So yeah, Pam can't make it through art school in the middle seasons of The Office. But by the end of The Office, Jim, a middle manager at a paper company, founds a sports media company empire, moves to Austin, and is successful. It's just complete wish fulfillment. What qualifications does he have? What experience does he have? What fucking capital does he have to fund a business? And I know I'm being very pedantic at TV watching, but I just point out the happily ever after that everyone has has this incredibly neat bow on it, this rocket ship of life that was just not in the spirit of the show in those early seasons at all. We do see throughout the arc and in season three, maybe we start to see glimmers of Jim starting to get a little bit more ambitious. There's that one episode where he goes on this golf game to try to make a sale with one of the clients. And I do think that that is that that is one coherent theme of character development that we see throughout. I think on the one hand, you can either identify with Jim, who's sort of under motivated or Dwight, who's severely over motivated, right? And over time, maybe they sort of meet in the middle because over time, Dwight's ambition cools a little bit. And so it is a little bit more believable in in that sense, sort of Mm. following the whole arc. But what you were saying earlier about this being kind of a an insidious apologetics of a certain kind of corporate life and inscribing a certain kind of institution serving ambition. I, <laughs> I, I, I take that. I take that critique. And I agree with you about Jim's little victories in that episode where he's trying to make the sale on the golf course, even when he makes the move over to Stanford. One of the things that the office was so good at portraying was how life in this mundane atmosphere can be full of small victories because people don't change overnight. People change through gradual small victories and something like Jim deciding to be a little bit more assertive than he normally would be and getting a a client feels very real. And then later on, you'll get changes like Jim being like, oh, I'm moving to Austin and starting ESPN. (laughs) Okay. Uh, sure. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, we boiled the frog slowly for a while and then threw it in a deep fryer right at the end. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, let's talk about Dwight because Dwight is so funny. We have all worked with a too intense guy at the office. My favorite Dwight moment is where he is setting up his desk because I think he locks his gear in the drawer overnight. So he rolls up into the office and he's humming the little drummer boy. He 
says the drum bits with his mouth in this excruciating water torture kind of annoyance at the desk. And that just captures that weird, too intense, too ambitious guy at the office and how they can get under your skin. Dwight is a guy that we're all probably familiar with at the office, right? He's your neurodivergent fascist is what I like to call him. (laughs) He's obsessed with authority and rules and titles and is always on intensity wise. One of the best recurring gags in the show is that Dwight's official position is assistant to the regional manager. He keeps calling it assistant regional manager and Michael or Jim have to correct them to being assistant to the regional manager. And this just irks him so much because he's obsessed with authorities and titles. Yeah. And one of my favorite qualities about Dwight is his obsession with the rules also makes him incredibly easy to manipulate. At one point, Jim starts a committee to deal with Dwight's complaint and Dwight is appealing to Jim's fake committee and is cursing after Jim denies his motion. (laughs) You must turn over to me all Christmas decorations and party paraphernalia immediately that will be returned to you on January 4th. Okay, I think I can help here. Okay, good. As ranking number two, I am starting a committee to determine the validity of the two committees and I am the sole member. The committee will act on this now. Okay, this is stupid. Could you please keep it down? I'm in session. I've determined this committee is valid. What? (laughs) No, 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 wait, 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 wait. Permission to join the validity committee. Permission to not. Damn it. He buys so easily into a rule system that's put up in place or the way that Toby for years is able to keep him muted by just telling him that Jim has a permanent complaint file in New York City that he's sending everything to. Which is just a box under his desk. Yes. He has an insane trust in the system. Yeah, he's gullible. But yeah, Dell, go off on Dwight. I know he's one of your favorite characters. Give us yeah, your yeah, disputation yeah. On, on Dwight. Yeah, I, I love Dwight and is definitely... A- I think the sort of, if not the beating heart of the office, then the palpitating spleen. (laughs) (laughs) This is a character who is sort of consumed by ambition and completely enamored of hierarchy and enamored of order, of cosmos, say. And yet he is this figure of pure chaos who comes out of chaos to sort of strive for this order, right? He's a beet farmer who lives on this kind of rundown farm. And this transition from his real existence of sugary beets and messy farm equipment to what he imagines this ornate order to be is really interesting and really relatable. And it's relatable, especially to people who have sort of experienced a certain kind of upward class mobility in the United States. I think whereas in the British version, you might have a character who comes from sort of a bucolic setting in the north of England and then goes to Oxbridge and then you ends up at your firm. With Dwight in this kind of American experience of climbing the hierarchy ladder, you don't really have that. And so you don't have this kind of elegant sort of persona laundering that you can get through a system of higher education. Instead, you kind of have to beast mode order (laughs) and and go from this one absurd realm to another. And I just think it's a a really satisfying and for me, very relatable sort of accounting of a certain kind of type A experience in American work and life. Yeah. And what's so fascinating about this, like, 
like you point out, Dwight's beet farm becomes a plot point. What we learn is that Dwight is a landowner. Dwight can operate a side hustle, bed and breakfast. But for some reason, he needs external validation from his job. He needs the hierarchy of the office. Weirdly, he needs to be the assistant to the regional manager. Like he could be a fucking petite bourgeois out there on his farm with his industry if he wanted to. And that's the lesson that he learns at the end. There's this moment where he's standing with his family overlooking all of this property when I think one of his family members dies. And one of his family members says, well, now somebody's going to have to manage all of this. And you see this glimmer in Dwight's eyes and he says, yes, I can do that. And it's kind of learning how to rethink the kinds of hierarchies that we think give us validation and give us self-control. So just to move on a little bit, we'll talk a little bit about Dwight's arc, because like all the characters in the office, he changes and softens. And I kind of see the arc of every character on the office, especially the ones who are bad, as slowly being socialized into a point where they can be released into the world, (laughs) right? So Michael Scott, at the beginning, he's kind of unintentionally antisocial, could not operate in the real world. And slowly, like a kindergarten or like a grade school, the office is meant to socialize a human being into the regular world. And that's kind of what happens with Dwight. So he's kind of this obsessive lackey in the first few seasons. And then Dwight uh, eventually quits the office and joins Staples. And when he returns, he's never quite the same, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't suck up to Michael with the same fervor. He seems to sometimes roll his eyes at Michael a lot more than he normally would and has independent authority. He often even ridicules Michael by saying he doesn't even own any land. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually softens so much to the point that him and Pam develop a very sweet friendship Mm -hmm. and has Jim as a best man. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't complain that the characters change over the course of nine seasons. Of course, they should, and they should change in recognizable ways. I think my beef with the show is that I don't believe in some of these changes. Little things like in the episode Conflict Resolution, Dwight literally tries to get Jim fired, does an ultimatum. And so I have a hard time believing that a character like Dwight would eventually not only forgive Jim, but have him as his best man at the wedding instead of his own biological brother, Mose. Or someone like Andy, who continues to hang out and be friends with Dwight, even when Dwight slept with his fiance. Recurringly, there's just certain behaviors that are a little beyond the pale for a show that was initially so grounded in reality and grounded in verisimilitude. Along those lines, I'm also curious to think about the political implications of the character of Dwight, going off of what you were saying before about Michael Scott and George Bush, and about how we interpret this political values of him even today. A few years ago, I saw an Atlantic article, I think, who sort of described Dwight as this proto-MAGA figure, which I just think Mm. is is nonsense. You could almost make that case more about Andy than than about Dwight. Mm. Um, So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Along these lines, one of the aspects of Dwight's characterization is this kind of white trash Bushido. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) This samurai ethics that he talks about, this virtue ethics. And it's really interesting that you normally in pop American culture associate that with 90s rap. But there is something transcendent, I think, about Dwight's ethical system that is very consistent. He, He does kind of in a lot of ways practice what he preaches ethically. And so I am interested in trying to account for this kind of rogue political figure of Dwight who, despite sympathizing with Nazis sometimes unwittingly is also kind of redeemable in some in some sense. Yeah, white trash Bushido is such a good way of putting it. What does he drive? He drives the 
80s Trans Am with the bird painted on the hood. <laughs> he is psych up music is that trashy metal that he rages to in the back of Jim's car when they have to go on the sales run. But he has this samurai intensity about him. Yeah, and he has a warrior's spirit. He duels Michael in one episode. We know that he loves paintball and laser tag. But also, yeah, building off something Dell said, the Andy figure as MAGA is so fucking interesting and funny because he is the downwardly mobile white and he also dates a teenager which you know Matt Gates. <laughs> we got a nice MAGA connection there and he's a fail son he's an absolute fail son we'll just do Andy next Let's I guess do, yeah. since he's coming up organically but his parents purchased a wing in Cornell so that he could attend and he's been just sort of coasting off of this intergenerational wealth and privilege and he translate all of that privilege into a salesman job at a mid-level paper supply company which is a very funny story of uh, fail son, which is something that I think is imbued with the Trump presidency, especially. And if you are a snob, you will know that Cornell is the, quote, worst of the Ivy League schools, right? And the <laughs> people who go to Cornell make fun of this, that the other six Ivies look down on them. But yeah, he's a guy who had to get bought into the worst of the snob schools. <laughs> I think Mindy Kaling went to Dartmouth, which is why he probably was a Cornell grad. Yeah. And I think one of the things that the show does with Andy so brilliantly is that as Michael and Dwight start to grow and become more sympathetic, you need someone to pick up the annoyingness slack that the cringe comedy, how have we not even mentioned cringe comedy as a concept of this show? The awkwardness that this show traffics in. They need someone to pick up the slack as Michael and Dwight are, like Giordano said, are socialized. And that annoyingness is Andy. This is a guy who, when asked to put on music on the radio, sings a cappella. Give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in the rock and roll and drift away. <laughs> hey, Big Tuna, I love Andy as a character. For them to introduce a new character in season three that hits this good, I think is very impressive. He's very true to life. Like Michael Scott and Dwight, he's equally blind to how pathetic he is. Are you being ironic, Giordano? I can't tell. No, I'm not. I like oh, okay. Andy. Is, I mean, I don't like what he becomes, but I think in the first season or that he's in or the first two seasons i like his character i think that it's annoying and real enough i know that as the show goes on he becomes manager and then starts to just make these 90 degree turns in his character arc that are probably some of the worst things to happen to the show yeah he gets ted lassified in the end he goes on american idol and he breaks down and cries and then he becomes a meme he gets auto-tuned a very early 2010s joke yeah he gets auto-tuned like double rainbow and he becomes a meme and then he gives a very Ted Lasso-y spiel about being nice and kind and oh I wish I wish someone tells you that it was the good old days when they were happening it's, it's some brutal stuff and he ends up with Ellie Kemper which I think is one of the worst characters on this show when we're first introduced to Andy he is an annoying guy at the other office that Jim ends up at at the Stanford Connecticut branch who nicknames Jim Big Tuna because he was eating a tuna sandwich and none of you are going to believe me but this exact thing happened to me I was working an office job in 2010 and I ate tuna sandwiches several days in a row and someone who was really not a TV guy because I was working at a at an 1800s fort from the War of 1812. So there were some eccentric people in that office, reenactors and whatnot. And one of the guys who LARPed as a British redcoat for his job nicknamed me Tuna because I ate tuna several days in a row. So this did actually happen to me. This is a type of guy. This is one of those moments where the office fucking hit it out of the park. The last thing I'll say about 
Andy, is that say what you will about Michael and Dwight. They are, for the most part, largely good at their jobs. Dwight is very good at his job. Michael gets better at his job. Michael is good enough at his job. I think they forgive him because of what he used to do as a salesman and because they're chronically thinking of closing this branch of the company anyways. But Andy sucks at his job, which is, again, where the show kind of extracts some humor. But he's a bad salesman because his personality is so grating. Okay, last character is Pam, engaged to her high school sweetheart who works in the warehouse in the early seasons. Yeah, there's not a lot to say about Pam. Pam is vanilla. Pam is Wonder Bread. Her arc seems to be just sort of making these career improvements at first as a salesman for the Michael Scott Paper Company. Never at the same level as Jim. Although I think she makes some great character progression in her decision to leave her engagement with Roy and be a little bit more forceful with her personality. So I like that stuff, but I don't think there's as much to say here about Pam as a character. Yeah, the writers end up having to write in the actress's real life pregnancy into a plot line after they already did a pregnancy and you can tell they're running out of stuff to write for the character. I think kind of like early Jim, she does act as a straight person for a lot of the more wild, absurd antics at the office and uh, yeah, she's the other half of the will they, won't they? Yeah, so let's talk about the decline of the show. The grand arc of history. It bends towards justice. I don't know if you've heard, but not in the case of the office. It bends towards a pro-corporate, pro-work, work is your family propaganda point. It is a show that starts out as highly satirical, grounded in reality and verisimilitude. And by the end, many of the characters become these cartoon cutouts and it becomes this farce, this sentimental wish fulfillment fantasy. And it happens, I guess, at first very slowly and then all at once. So when the show first starts, I really do think you can't see it without seeing 1999's office space in the DNA. These tiny annoyances and indignities that you need to suffer at the office all under the umbrella of doing work that you know is meaningless. You sell paper for a mid-level regional paper company in the age of online shopping and staples. The show is about how banal and depressing the working office is. Yeah, and it's no coincidence, by the way, that Mike Judge, who made Office Space, and Greg Daniels, who made The Office, both created King of the Hill together. They work together quite often. And if we're going to talk about the decline of the show, you first have to talk about what made it great to begin with. And one of those things has been mentioned is the banality of working in America in an office in a low-level paper company, which is especially full of tension because one of the components of capitalism that make it possible at all is this expectation of endless growth. Mm -hmm. And now the industry that you're in is one in which you can see the end on the horizon. So how do you continue to operate in an industry which you can already see that that won't be possible? And in fact, the opposite will be true, that you will be actually downsized on the way to non-existence. And it makes it so especially fraught and funny to watch the anxiety that the characters have about their office work, right? Not only are they working in a scenario where nobody gets anything done and nobody accomplishes anything, but you also have extreme anxiety about your job every day. I don't think it's any accident that almost every iteration of The Office, all 13 of them, soon to be 14, uh, there's a Greek version being introduced this year, always starts with the episode downsizing because it heightens the anxiety and the banality of what everybody in this office is feeling. 
trying to make work livable despite your boss and how useless all of your efforts feel. Yeah, it's this hanging sword of Damocles that could come down and kill you and end your job at any point and leave you without income and maybe potentially homeless. And on top of all of that, you have an annoying boss who thinks he's funny, who loves to micromanage. Or as Michael likes to say, manage at a more micro level. So David Graeber wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs, which I think is an amazing book that everyone should read. And it's about the phenomenon of the fact that 50% of all jobs, according to the people that do them, think that their job has no social utility. They think that it serves no function in society. And I think this book came out in 2011, where people didn't even have a name for this phenomenon. And the book doesn't actually suggest a program to fix this until the very last chapter. It's just outlining how and why this happened. And a huge part of the why, why does bullshit jobs exist? In a free market, shouldn't bullshit jobs be eliminated because they cost the company money and they don't do anything? And the idea is that it has a lot to do with optics. It has a lot to do with looking busy. It has a lot to do with obsessional hierarchies, with people feeling like they need lackeys, people feeling like they need to be pushed around. David Graeber calls these jobs a scar on our collective emotional soul or something of that nature. Hmm. Because part of being a human is the feeling that you can exert agency and change on the world and a bullshit job takes it away from you. And I think that The Office, without putting it so explicitly, implicitly captures this phenomenon, this frustration of like, what the fuck am I doing? And then they make it funny with the addition of Michael Scott. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because you sort of make two related points. The one point is the show is in a lot of ways about precarity, about the experience of living on the edge. And I think no character better exemplifies that than one we haven't mentioned, namely Creed, right? (laughs) At one point he says, you know, there's one thing standing between me and homelessness and it's this job. And I really liked that moment because it did acknowledge that the precarity that we normally think of as being institutional, i.e. the company could get shut down, is also on an individual level. People need to to live and make money, right? I mean, Michael has had less money when he was 40 than he did it was 30, right? Uh, (laughs) As as, uh, unfortunate as it was for Scott's tots. Um, So it it, it is interesting to, to think about that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, about this sort of bullshit job idea, right? These jobs that no, not only serve no purpose within a society, they serve no purpose within the institution that pays them to do the bullshit jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And so it can be a source of demoralization. It can also be a source of like maybe some some power within the institution if you learn how to make it. Like I think about Pam and her taking on the duty of, of office manager at one strategic moment, mm-hmm. a job that's meaningless and doesn't pay anything, but that still adds some kind of authority. And so this, I like the point that you make between this push and pull of precarity and bullshit that mm-hmm. we constantly live as anybody who has to work to live in, in, in the modern world. Yeah, for sure. And in these early seasons, they make jokes. I mean, we already said Jim said he would kill himself if he, if he was still there in five years. But you also have Michael saying things like the office is like a family, which is meant to be a joke. It's meant to be, my God, could you imagine if this office replaced my family, <laughs> the people who know me best in the world, <laughs> the people, <laughs> if you're some fucking conservative psycho, the fundamental building block of society, the family being replaced with work. It's a joke. But by the end of the series, that is precisely what happens. And the office is not only metaphorically your family, but it is literally your family <laughs> because we had multiple marriages within the workplace. We have Jim 
and Pam. We have Angela and Dwight and even kind of Phyllis and Bob Vance of Vance Refrigeration because Vance Refrigeration is in the same office park. That's where you find your partner. And when Michael eventually leaves the show in season six or seven or wherever it is, the entire office gets together, organizes a song for him and sings for him. They sing the Rent song about measuring your life in love, not in minutes, but in love. (laughs) This is a guy that is implied says the N word at work. (laughs) This is a guy who fired Pam as a joke. This is a guy who ruined multiple characters weddings this is a guy who fucked pam's mom (laughs) (laughs) they put their collective efforts into harmonizing the rent song for him what the fuck am i in a cult (laughs) what (laughs) happened (laughs) yeah that is the fundamental part where the office goes wrong is it's supposed to be about learning to get by in this extremely dreary existence in scranton pennsylvania on small relationships and little victories and it turns into this absolute saccharine show about how the office is your family and this is a cartoon of people who can't get enough of being together the the office is supposed to be people who don't want to be together they're there because they work together not because they like each other yeah they're not there by choice they're work friends yeah the show ends with andy saying those were the good old days those were the golden years of my life this makes me think of something i saw on a just facebook or something some random white woman left a comment on a post about the office and said man i wish i worked in the office and i'm like what <laughs> what is that it doesn't make sense what do you mean <laughs> what are you talking about but it's really interesting that that this comment kind of fleshes out this idea that this becomes kind of an arcadia right it becomes a kind of pastoral like a idealized golden age setting where everything can be okay because there's this nice five to one emotional resolution at the end of every unit in a similar vein there is a flanderization of almost every character in this show which refers to ned flanders and how he becomes more of a cartoonish display of his own character rather than a person with a few characteristics and so the office is supposed to be a reflection of real life right everybody has had a weird guy in their office like dwight who insists that your objects don't go a half inch onto his desk I've had an office mate like that before. But by season four, the cracks are showing and Dwight takes a blowgun out of the toilet tank as well as several other weapons. And when he finds out that Jan has a stroller that was $12,000 or something, $1,200, he tries to destroy it in the parking lot with his car. We've moved on from a guy who cares that your stuff is on his desk to a guy who keeps a blowgun at work. (laughs) It no longer has any basis in reality at all or reminds you of any real person. He is completely flanderized into a a cartoonish version of himself. It is no longer a satirization of real life. And I think in those middle seasons, in the transition from the anti-work office to the pro-work office, that's where some of the brilliance really happens. Because as these walls start to come down in the liminal spaces, there's some good fucking comedy there. In the season two episode, I believe it's called Email Monitoring or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
Jim has a house party and it's made clear that he's been flirting with Pam for years, but Pam's never been to his house. She's never seen a baby photo of Jim because she kind of teases him when she goes there. It's the first time the work-life firewall comes down and hijinks ensue. And it's great. Dwight breaks into Jim's house and shames him for it by saying, a rock hide a key, Jim. (laughs) And Jim's roommate says, ah, you must be Dwight. The implication in that line, Jim has been complaining about Dwight to his roommate for all this time. And of course, in a similar vein, we have the perfect episode of The Office and a perfect episode of television, Dinner Party, is also about this work-life firewall coming Mm -hmm. down. It's about seeing the, I saw this on YouTube, someone called it this, the Lovecraftian horror of Michael and Jan's relationship (laughs) that he can't quite turn away from. I, I stole it from someone on YouTube. It's too good a metaphor for me to not lift for this podcast. But yes, it used to be a show that understood the difference between work and life and could play to comedic effect when they break it down. And then by the end, it's just become your work is your life, your life is your work, this is your family. Yeah, it loses sight of its own joke, which was, like you said, of course work is in your fucking family. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's interesting that it does this in a sitcom because if you look at the golden age of 80s and 90s sitcoms, they're all based around the domestic space. Fat guy, hot wife. Mm -hmm. Homer Simpson. Al from Married with Children. The racist one in the 1970s one. Oh, um, not the Honeymooners, but also that. The the Honeymooners (laughs) is also that, fat guy, half wife, but that's the domestic abuse one. Right, right. Yeah, but anyway, all of our sitcoms are set in the home where your real family is. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of these fat guy, hot wives shows the fat guy hates their job. It's something he begrudgingly does to support his family. Could you imagine Al from Married with Children loving being a shoe salesman is the simpsons improved if homer simpson loves being a nuclear tech of course not the comedy comes from the fact that he doesn't give a shit about his job and it's funny watching sitcoms slowly devolve from that nuclear family ideal right with the 80s it's like oh okay here's a guy who has a family but kind of hates them (laughs) 90s is like well what if your friends were your family and you spent every thanksgiving and christmas with them and then in the 2000s it's like well what if your office mates were your family (laughs) (laughs) yeah you can trace the decline of the american worker through their sitcom also in those 80s shows can own a home on a single income (laughs) right it is funny that that's one of the things about the simpsons that make it the most antiquated is just the economics of the home (laughs) (laughs) three kids on one salary yeah listen man if you listen to our pod you probably have leftist politics you've probably seen the stupid graph where it graphs productivity versus hours of labor worked by the working class people are working more than they used to this is a documented scientific fact even though our technology has proved and we're more efficient people are still working more because all of those profits go towards the capitalist class and that social reality is reflected in even something as banal as the goddamn situational comedy program <laughs> actually i have a question for y'all because i don't have a theory about this this is a show that relishes in cringe awkwardness it is brutal to watch some of those early seasons especially Especially. The comedy comes from social awkwardness. That's a, a, a prime form of The Office's comedy. But yet, as I said at the top of the show, 105,000 years 
of streaming of The Office in one calendar year alone. This is a comfort blanket of a show for people. Why do you think that a show that's so much built around discomfort has become such a source of comfort in a time of crisis for so many people? I have no answer. Go off, Del. Take a swing. I really think it has a lot to do with how part of the comfortability of watching the show, and this is true of any work of media, whether it be a book or anything, where part of your experience of watching it is also about remembering where you were the first Mm. time you watched it and the settings of your own life. And so it's kind of like a pin, a piece of media that we consume is like a pin that we put in a particular moment of our life that we can come back to every time that we read it again or watch Mm -hmm. it again. There are definitely certain shows that when I rewatch, I'm filled with warm, fuzzy feelings from the first time that I watched it. A nostalgic feeling from my first viewing. And I think part of the reason The Office doesn't have that feeling for me is that I watched this as it was coming out in the 2000s when I was a teenager before I had ever worked in an office job. So I thought this was okay, not great. And then I worked in some offices. I came back to it and something clicked and I got it a lot better. But I still think back to that first time watching it, like 14 or 15 years old and be like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, I have a couple theories. The first is its ability to romanticize everyday life, I think is very attractive. I remember watching this in high school and we sort of even parodied our own classroom having a reality TV style format where you would imagine what you would say. And this idea that regular life could be a TV show or could be uh, made to be bigger than it actually was is very attractive for one. And that your annoying boss is now a character on TV whose flaws are being exposed to millions of people. (laughs) And then the other thing I think that might be attractive about the show, especially now as time goes on, is Ben, it's interesting that you mentioned All in the Family. I think that's the show you were thinking of Mm. earlier. And whenever I ask my parents about this show, they talk about Archie Bunker and how Archie Bunker was this racist, sexist character. And that's a thing that people loved about the show is he's saying things that you can no longer say. And he's the butt of the joke often in the show. And so it's meant to showcase how ignorant Archie can be. And I think that for me, when I rewatch an episode like Diversity Day or Sexual Harassment, Michael Scott is the butt of the joke and he's acting in incredibly ignorant ways in an office. And that can feel very taboo and tantalizing to to see someone behave like this in the modern world. In the ways that society has changed and Michael is representing a transitional figure for office conduct. Let's talk very briefly about the style of The Office. So uniquely at that time, The Office is filmed in a mockumentary style. We discussed this a little bit on Arrested Development, the rise of the single camera show and how it was meant to mirror reality television, which at the time was having this gigantic boom that just swallowed up all of television watching habits. Everybody remembers Survivor, right? The classic show where you put a bunch of people on an island where people already live and see if they can survive (laughs) with the help of only a television production crew? Well, The Office hired the cinematographer from Survivor to shoot it. They were really trying to nail down the format of the mockumentary to really make it feel like everything else you were watching on television at the time, from Survivor to American Idol to Big Brother. When they tasked the cinematographer with shooting this, they wanted him to focus on the elements of reality TV that make it feel like reality TV. I'll give you an example. In the first episode, Michael does his classic prank on Pam, where he pretends to fire her. Normally in a TV show, the camera would keep panning back and forth between the speakers. So you would see Michael speaking and then Pam speaking. But in reality TV, this doesn't happen because they only have one camera for the most part. And so we just get to see Pam crying as Michael talks off screen saying that she's fired and she won't be receiving severance. (laughs) 
<laughs> Classic prank. We've yeah. all been there. You really got me. You really violated my trust into thinking I was unemployed. That was really a fun bit you did. A good bant. And so the use of that cinematographer from reality TV really helps to sell this idea that this is happening in a real office with real people. We're not seeing the camera pan back to Michael as he delivers more and more devastating lines to Pam. <laughs> and if you watch those first six episodes, because this was one of those mid-season replacement shows, they filmed it in a real office. It wasn't a manicured soundstage in a back lot in Hollywood somewhere. And it shows the fluorescent lighting is harsh and it looks incredibly dreary. And this is something that they changed moving forward in the later seasons. Even the actors themselves look drearier and, and worse. And I think that the mockumentary style, it really is the easy mode for storytelling when it comes to things like plot and exposition, because you can have characters explain precisely why they are doing things in these little talking head confessionals. This is something that I think the show Community mocked very well. Community, which did four mockumentary episodes. Community mocked the mockumentary in a meta-mockumentary very well in an episode where Abed notes that the documentary format enables the creator to tell complex narratives by providing an easy mechanism to allow people to explain themselves directly to the camera, which he then demonstrates by cutting from Pierce dramatically explaining that he's dying to the study group to a scene where Cheers peerfully admits that this is a hoax in a talking head. And then the show hard cuts to Abed saying, see, fish in a barrel, which is a great meta joke, but it's something that The Office also does. Not only moving the plot around with these talking heads, but also playing with the talking heads to land punchlines. The talking head, I think, really complements the delusional narcissism of some of the characters like Dwight or Michael, because it would be almost too unbelievable to see them bragging about this stuff to other characters. But you can see characters like this going off in a one-on-one interview with the camera pointed on them. Yeah, and it's interesting because this kind of device is much more common in other media, in drama, for example, or in the novel. This is exactly the kind of storytelling that can happen. And one of the things I think The Office does is it draws on these tools and really plays with them with the same sort of rhetorical effects that, say, a good internalized novel does. And, mm. and I imagine this can get into some of the sort of elements of the of the office that we might classify as, as postmodern, which we could probably talk about later. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the P word. I have something prepared for that. The real P word, postmodernism. So there's a character on The Office named David Wallace, who's the big, scary corporate boss, this looming presence throughout the series. And one of the creators said that it was a reference to none other than David Foster Wallace, classic postmodern author. Someone described David Foster Wallace's style as hysterical realism. And if you pull up hysterical realism on Wikipedia, it is defined as a literary genre typified by a strong contrast between elaborately absurd prose, plotting, or characterization on the one hand, and careful, detailed investigations of real, specific social phenomena on the other. It is also known as recherche postmodernism. Does this remind us of anything or anyone? That is very true, that a lot of uh, infinite jest, some of it takes place in an office, from what I remember. <laughs> nice try, Jordano. No one's read infinite jest. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's read the first 42 chapters or something. <laughs> The Saudi Arabian guy works in an office, I think. 
and there's like some absurd like bureaucracy there i think actually yeah let's sound off real quickly does everyone have a favorite talking head moment oh i know mine for me it's always michael because i think that the talking head moments are at their best when the characters are lying to the camera Mm -hmm. because it's a documentary so people are behaving as they would in real life which is to be dishonest and try and (laughs) boast about yourself if it was for a wider audience and so Mm -hmm. something like michael saying i like to think of myself as a friend first and a boss second and probably an entertainer third (laughs) (laughs) those moments are my favorite when michael is like self-aggrandizing to the camera he's not like you know we just said that the purpose of the talking head is that they can explain their thoughts and feelings but i actually i like when that's not the case when Mm. they're lying to the they're being dishonest and dishonest both to themselves and the camera yeah Yeah, exactly very those are my favorite talking head moments i think my favorite talking head is probably dwight describing his ideal valentine's day because he's so smug about it my perfect valentine's day i'm at home three cell phones in front of me fielding desperate calls from people who want to buy one of the 50 restaurant reservations I made over six months ago. He's so proud of this incredibly stupid scheme that he has. He clearly misunderstands the question or thinks he's too clever for the question. The real ideal Valentine's Day has nothing to do with a loved one or a relationship. It has to do with advancement, personal financial advancement. Dal, you got a favorite talking head moment? Um, It's probably a Dwight one too. The one that comes to mind is when he's recalling Michael's advice to him that i'll never forget which is just don't be an idiot (laughs) (laughs) all right so yeah that's the gist of the style of the show it's this postmodern mockumentary on working in an office yeah that's actually a good jumping off point for our next discussion here which is i mean if you're a long time shufflehead you know that we love talking about the echoes in the culture how does this show affect modern life and the times that come after it how did it make its mark on our culture and one of the biggest ways that it did was by creating Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. Greg Daniels leaves the show, I think, in the fourth or fifth season to go create Parks and Rec. And Parks and Rec is stylistically very much like The Office in that it's a mockumentary about small town life, but is thematically very different. Parks and Rec is sort of inspired by Obama. This mm-hmm. hope and change. Leslie Nope embodies this sense that government could make a difference and that, that we can improve things. In that way, unlike The Office, it's not inspired by real life. It's inspired by a fantasy Mm -hmm. of real life. And so Parks and Rec actually starts very badly when it's operating in a grounded space and only gets better as the characters become more cartoonish because it is a cartoon to begin with. It's based off of a projection that Obama made for himself. Of course, it's funny as the characters become more ridiculous. Yeah, it's such wish fulfillment. And this show is my comfy watch when I'm feeling bad and I want my warm security blanket show. I watch Parks and Rec because it's such a lib wish fulfillment show everyone in government is passionately dedicated to the cause of improving people's lives even the radical libertarian (laughs) is somehow not a racist and works in the parks department for the betterment of things everyone is a cartoon character in the office there's no character quite as stupid as like a joey tribbiani right michael might be the closest but his brand of stupidity is more just delusion or ignorance not just a book dumb kind of guy andy is that joey tribbiani dumb guy kind of guy this is a guy who doesn't realize he can't play the song sex hair in front of kids and he tries to change it to sex bear thinking that hair was the 
problem word. Like just comically stupid or whatever. But every one of these characters is a cartoon, but they all act in these very warm and fuzzy kind of ways. They always say the right thing to each other. They always support one another. It's Ted Lasso meets Obama is the Parks and Rec ethos. If you want to talk about how it goes all in on that your job is your life kind of shit, Ron Swanson walks Leslie Nope down the aisle. And yeah, I mean, we we were listing the domestic space sitcoms of earlier eras. Now look at all of the workplace sitcoms that you have. You have The Office, you have Parks and Rec, fucking Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Well, what could be funnier than a police station? <laughs> what, what could be a funnier grounds for comedy than the fu- fucking police? Stuff like Silicon Valley, that's workplace adjacent. It seems to be a much more common type of sitcom that gets made nowadays as people work more and more and don't own homes or start families. When you were talking, I was thinking of examples and one example that came to mind is Veep. Mm. But, and then the second thought I had was, well, that's also sort of taking up on the sort of West Wing tradition. And so I wonder, do we see this confluence of the West Wing kind of workplace comedy idealism perspective on the one hand and the office perspective, which is much more dystopian on the other hand, kind of mm. meeting in some of these later receptions. I do think that Veep is a little bit too cynical. I think it's the parody of the West Wing more than a successor show. And Giordano, you, if I'm not mistaken, went to go see The Office Musical. I did. Yeah, I went to go see The Office Musical on Broadway, baby. <laughs> and it was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Do not go. Do not come. <laughs> I don't even want to get into some of the horrible character decisions, but one of the most egregious plot points is that, you know how Dwight puts the cat in Angela's freezer to kill it? There's a moment in the musical where Kevin is so stupid that he eats the frozen cat and is like, mmm, cat. It's like, this is so bad. I mean, Kevin in the office is someone who completely goes off the rails too. There's a scene where he's eating broccoli stem first because he has never ate it before. And it's like, oh yeah, this is a reflection of real life. Okay. But maybe like a more important important echo in the culture is actually some of the podcast that it has created because the office podcast splash is insane everybody's probably familiar with office ladies which is a podcast by jenna fisher and angela kinsey and it is the number seven podcast of 2022 right under the daily and ben shapiro's show it is so insanely popular it's just a recap but people want to be back in Scranton, Pennsylvania that much that they are (laughs) listening to The Office Ladies. Kevin also has a podcast. But yeah, so it's as equally popular to The Daily and Ben Shapiro, which is a a strange group of... What if in an interest to maximize our numbers, we combined these Mm. three podcasts? So it's Ben Shapiro's Daily Office Lady. No, Ben Shapiro's Daily Ladies. Ben Shapiro's Daily Ladies. It's going to become the number five podcast. It's just checking in with our boy Ben Shapiro on who is favorite lady that day is uh today's daily lady is none other than christina Hendricks. those wide hips are perfect for birthing which is of course a woman's role daily lady today's daily lady is ayn rand i think about her every day she's one of my favorite people <laughs> today's favorite lady the venus of villendorf <laughs> once again this is the ideal female form this is what they take it from us <laughs> I had another media reception suggestion that I wanted to plug, and that's the Apple TV Plus show Severance, which recently finished its first. The premise of the show, uh, starring um, Ben Wyatt from Adam Parks Scott, who auditioned to play Adam Jim. Scott. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 all incestuous. <laughs> the premise of the show is that a company has developed technology called Severance that allows you to install a chip in your head that cuts your memory 
memories when you're in the office versus when you're outside of the office. So if you have this chip installed in your head and you go down into the basement levels of the corporation, you can't remember anything that happened before. And then the person outside can't remember anything that happens inside. And so effectively what it does is it splits your personality into two completely separate individuals. You are any, the person you are while you're in at work, and your Audi, the person that you are out in the world. And so your any, the, the work that they do is completely cookie cutter, David Graeber bullshit jobs, right? These jobs are very obviously not actually real jobs, but they're mechanisms of social control for the people inside. And then the people on the outside are having all these abstract debates of, oh, is severance technology good or bad? So then they try to talk to each other. It's these two halves of your severed life. And it's such a smart reception of a lot of these ideas about work and about the bullshit job and the mechanisms of power that it operates that I think engages in really interesting ways with daily office antics as a kind of sitcom. We've said this a couple times, but this show, I mean, the American version is a remake, way more successful than this British original, but this show has spawned so many international versions from so many different countries. There's a bunch of European versions. There's a Canadian version in Quebecois French. There is an Israeli version. It's all over the map. I'll pitch the question to the group. Why do you think this American show gets so many international remakes? British show. British show. Shut up. We, it's... It, it, it's it's American now. now. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Why do you think this American show is so easy to remake abroad and not anything else? Not Friends, not Seinfeld, not, I don't know, fucking Parks and Rec, I guess. Why is it this? The office is kind of a quarantine space where there are international similarities in a way that you don't have to interface with a lot of politicians or, or politics. And it's easier, more malleable to, to adapt to different cultural settings because the cultural influxes is maybe more limited. Yeah, America and the West has exported the office as place of work, as means of doing work. In the same way that Henry Ford exported the assembly line to everywhere <laughs> as a model of work, we have now exported the office, capital T, capital O, with its cubicles and everything as a means of social control. We all live in the same country and it's called capitalism. And that looks like office work. With no one ever challenging, is this the best means of doing the task at hand because <laughs> it's an exceptional means for social control. I don't want to take us away from this conversation, but you do keep talking about the office this arc that it takes as somehow endorsing a certain kind of status quo in the capitalist world. But does it really, is it really an endorsement? Is it really a compelling endorsement? Is a thing that it does really make people feel okay? I mean, I guess what you're talking about, it's wish fulfillment and everything, but I don't know if the early seasons of The Office were any more politically effective for any kind of leftist message than the right. And it's all just different ways of performing catharsis. It's like catharsis from different directions. And so I, I would maybe want to push back gently against your interpretation of the arc, the, the political ramifications of the arc. I mean, you could certainly think that it's pro-work propaganda that doesn't land, but I think that its intention in its creation is in that for so much of comedy as a genre, going back to Shakespeare or even ancient Greek new comedy, it ends with a wedding, right? That is the culmination of like a Shakespearean comedy so frequently. This is your happily ever after as you find your partner. And what the author office suggests is that you can find 
find your happily ever after in your workplace. That's what late office does. That's what it's trying to suggest. Whether or not it lands or not, you know, that's between the viewer and the content. But I definitely do see that as the message that it puts front and center. You can find your soulmate at work. And not just your soulmate, but your family, your best man, all that kind of shit. But yeah, getting back to the international versions. Yeah, the fact that it has 14 versions is truly insane. And there's something about, and I think it's what you guys said, which is that the office is inherently adaptable because American culture is everywhere now, especially work culture. But yeah, you can't adapt something like Seinfeld to have 14 international versions. It's too Jewish to exist (laughs) around the world. The things that it's talking about, the social cues don't exist in the same way. And so you can't just suddenly put Kramer in Greece. Yeah, the wackiest characters like Kramer, that's just your average Italian man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he works about as much. (laughs) Every single Swede, if you put him anywhere else, are so blunt. They're like Larry David in Career Enthusiasm. Anyone north of the fucking Rhine or Alps. Yeah, I watched a little bit of the German office. I speak okay German, and I watched it with my German roommate who helped me translate some punchlines. The show is not named The Office. It's named Stromberg, which is the name of the manager character. A couple highlights. In the episode that's about Diversity Day, well, everyone's white because it's Germany in the 2000s. They have a character who, in Diversity Day, complains that people call him a Octomongo, which is German for document mongoloid. (laughs) something that they wrote in 2000's office and i think there's just some weird interesting comparisons where instead of a break room they have an actual cafeteria because germany just has a better work culture than america in a lot of ways workers have more rights in germany and this is a point of friction in their sitcom about the office i need to stress most of these office remakes only go for a season or two because you can remake it but there is enough variation across cultures and countries that it doesn't always land perfectly in germany it ran for over five years, including a crowdfunded movie. They could not get enough Stromberg in Germany. And the last thing that I want to say has to do with baldness. Herr Stromberg, the Michael Scott figure, is bald as fuck. He's got the horseshoe of hair, which in the bald typology is pretty close to the Sigma of baldness. The Sigma male of bald is the bald pony. I tried in the pandemic, but I I couldn't do it. I didn't have the Sigma grind set in me. Below that is your horseshoe hair. Below that the beta we've gone single alpha beta the beta of baldness is of course shaving your head you know your rock your jason stathams <laughs> and below that i don't know what comes below beta it should be gamma but it's c in the little thing below the beta is the hair plug which is exactly what steve carell did in between seasons one and two in season <laughs> one under those fluorescent lights this guy's balding in season two they hair plug him and i will go on the record that that's a betrayal of the community <laughs> hair plugs <laughs> you are a race traitor to your kind of proud bald men look up stromberg maybe we'll put him in the episode art it's an absolute power move and he's he's a lot hornier than michael scott the german one in one episode when the toby character gets divorced herr stromberg tries to cheer him up and he says a divorce is like aids of the soul because it slowly rots away at you because you fucked the wrong girl it's more elegant in the german It's apparently he's tweaking a German proverb, but he's stupid and fucked it up. I might take us into the the home stretch here and talk about the end of the show. NBC is so desperate by the end of the show that they are keeping it going. Greg Daniels has left. Michael Schur has left. Steve Carell's left. Why are you still here? (laughs) There are 18 main characters in the last season, and the romances in the show start to just get incredible. I'll put some of them in. 
Anyway, everybody's in love with each other, trying to recreate the Jim and Pam situation. And the character arcs get so rushed, where everybody's making these 90-degree turns. By the time they introduce D'Angelo Vickers, Will Ferrell's character, he's basically a different guy every 10 minutes. But NBC has lost Frasier, they've lost friends, and they are desperate to keep the show on there. They even introduce like, a new Jim and new Dwight in case they need to pull the fire alarm on the show. <laughs> and they even they make a spin-off series called The Farm. Yeah, there's an office spinoff about Shrewd Farms. Yeah, I think you can see how NBC bungles the ball at the end of the finish line, how they're so desperate for a dub. One thing that I found pretty funny thinking about this show and thinking about Critical Darling Arrested Development is these big networks are simultaneously so good and so bad at making TV shows. Fox shoots himself on the foot with Arrested Development because they can't market it. This Critical Darling that's so fucking funny. NBC, as the office is on... NBC has both 30 Rock on the air and Community, both shows which started after The Office started and ended before The Office ended, which got so much critical praise. But they just can't let a good thing go on The Office. They are so desperate. There is this professional class of critics telling them what's working and what's not. You kind of wish these execs in the big studios would listen to them sometimes. But I don't know. They probably have information I don't. And their primary goal is to sell ad space, right? So. The Office, even at its worst, was probably selling more ad space. And a show that created such a nice, true-to-life portrayal of American life quickly became Springfield and was full of cartoon characters. So when you think about The Office, you suddenly have all these qualifiers about saying that it's a great show. Yeah, it's a great show for seasons two through four. I include one in there, too. I love season one. I can't watch season one. It's too much. (laughs) I think it's kind of at its best because I'm okay with it being bleak. Mm. I'm also a big fan of The British show ah okay Dell, any closing thoughts i hear the criticism and i don't know i'm one of these people who sort of sees it with more rose-colored glasses and i enjoy the whole thing for what it is and all of its imperfections so i'll be one of those people who doesn't need to use the qualifiers <laughs> for, for all of it but yeah the sweet spot is i guess season two through five all right so that's all we got on the office we were all kind of hesitant to do this because it's so beloved and you know what is there to say oh welcome to remember shovel we're discussing the mona lisa it's good like come on if you joined us as always thank you for listening big shout out thanks to our guest dell and as i always say like us follow us give us five stars it helps for the algorithm like michael we have an insane need to be liked (laughs) (laughs) yes and follow us on twitter where we tweet out all the jokes that aren't good enough for this pod (laughs) yeah all right ciao ciao And of course, afterlife of the show, do we get Joe Biden without the office, without the office putting Scranton, Pennsylvania on our radar? This is the greatest thing to happen to Joseph Robinette Biden of all time. Yeah, I I don't know that it influences our decision to (laughs) elect Joe Biden, but I think maybe it's showing us the same thing, which is a romantization of small town life. And Scranton is the perfect place for that. So when we look at Biden and we hear his stories about being a lifeguard and corn pop and how his dad used to drive no one drive a car like my dad man (laughs) like we love to see that as much as we love to see michael scott's antics at the office in this like uh yeah small town